0: day in our kind of interlude worship series we've had focusing on becoming more, becoming better disciples and we've been utilizing the four C's of religion outlined in this book from my religious studies background. It is called The Study of Religion in an Age of Global Dialogue by Leonard Swindler and Paul Moses and this book has been able to help us think about discipleship from all those different seas, And they are creed, it refers to the cognitive aspect of our religion, the things that we believe and think. Code is our behavior and our ethics. Cult, not the pejorative cult, but cultists, that is all of our ritual activities, and specifically in Christianity, how we worship and our disciplines. And the last one we will cover today is community. It is the structure that refers to the relationships among the followers. This can vary widely from a very egalitarian relationship as witnessed among the Society of Friends, sometimes better known as Quakers, through a Republican structure, as Presbyterians have, to a monarchical structure, as with some Hasidic Jews, And so there are many different ways that a religion, but specifically in our case, Christianity can organize itself so that there are relationships. And some again are hierarchical and structured vertically and some of them are much more egalitarian and horizontally done. But is there a right way or a wrong way? Probably not. Probably it is varied by the beliefs of the particular community and how it needs to function in its current context. But today, we're going to look at how the early community of the church was functioning in the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. And in this, we heard that very early in the the days of the church, that there was a problem. Now, I know that there's no more problems in churches, so I'm going to take you back to a time when there was a problem in churches. And this problem is that some of the Greeks recognized that the Jewish side was not treating everybody equal. And there were complaints about, well, the Jewish widows versus the Greek widows, and all of this goes back to actually the book of Exodus, when God commanded God's people, you shall care for the widow and the orphan. And this was really important because there was no social safety net back in the early days of the Bible or even in the early days of the church. There was nothing that was regimented or governmental that would allow people to continue to live safely or securely. And so if you became a widow, that meant that the man that, with whom you shared a relationship, whether it was your father or your uncle or your older brother or your husband or your, your older son, what that man had died and then you, who couldn't have had property, and you who relied upon that male representative in order to provide for your most basic needs, food and shelter, were suddenly cut off. And under those cases, most of those widows became destitute. They became beggars and homeless. And that's not the will of God. And so God was asking God's people to be attentive to those persons. And then also including orphans because children who were orphans had the same problem. There was no adult, specifically a land holding and property holding male to ensure that they would be safe. And so it became the role of God's people to be the safety net for these who are most vulnerable in society. And so here it was that they were looking at the widows and some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. They were feeding them, which has been a continuing practice among Christianity for almost 2000 years now, feeding those who are hungry. And we have continued that here at Crozet United Methodist Church through our food mission and ministry, Grace Grocery. We too provide a place where anyone who is hungry is able to come and receive free food. And now the 12, the original apostles, well, the original 11 plus the one that they had gotten at the start of the book of Acts, they called together the whole community. They called a church meeting. And everyone gathered together and they said to them, it's not right that we should neglect what we are doing in preaching and teaching and spreading the word of God so that we may wait on tables, which was a reference to serving people food instead of doing that. So he said, so here is what we propose to you. Therefore, we propose that you select from yourselves seven men of good standing, people who are strong in the spirit, people who are wise, so that they can take on this special task And it says that if they take on the task, then the 12, the apostles, will continue to be devoted to supporting it with prayer and serving the word, helping to ground it in our scriptural understanding of Jesus Christ. That is their commitment. And what happened was that the community received that well and agreed. It says it pleased the whole community. And hopefully it pleased the whole community, because you know there's always that one person that's like, I don't care what we're doing, I don't like it. That person didn't get to weigh in, apparently, or they were homesick. Whatever happened, the whole community was on. And they chose first Stephen. And Stephen is singled out here as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He believed in God and the Holy Spirit was upon him and they selected six others, including Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, that's a lot of biblical talk, but what probably happened was that the first six, including Stephen, were Jewish. And the proselyte from Antioch had been a Gentile. So he had come from the community that was feeling neglected. So he could actually reach further into the Greek community and help to identify those widows that needed assistance, which is a wonderful thing. So in choosing this seven, even the community then recognized that it needed diversity in order to accomplish this holy task. And so all of them came together and Stephen is an incredible, moment in christianity there's actually a ministry called stephen ministry that continues what we read about here in the acts of the apostles it's called stephen ministry it's been around since 1975 and since that time over 600,000 christians have been trained in congregational care That's an amazing number of people who are trained to do congregational care, because what you're seeing here is the early church recognizing that there are multiple forms of ministry. One of them is pastoral care. That's the kind of care that clergy give, pastor going back to shepherd, shepherding the flock, not sheep, but in this case, people. And then there's congregational care. Congregational care is congregants helping to care for congregants. This is really important because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's only one of me, and there are more of you. And so having congregants helping in that was a way in which you could make sure that people weren't falling through the cracks. It was a way of making sure that should something arise in the course of that ministry, that they could let the apostles know you are needed here. And so they were able to continue to do their work, but also be present when needed. And this was a complimentary form of ministry Stephen ministry is often employed at large churches because it helps to create a system by which people are focusing on other people and for some of us nurturing is our spiritual gift caring for others checking in on them and Stephen ministry can include some of the practical things like arranging rides to doctors visits or delivering of food or ensuring that people are able to stay in their homes and pay their bills but it also includes equipping laypersons for conversation. A lot of care is conversational. Being able to have those difficult talks. Now as clergy, we are vastly trained in that. If somebody wants to talk about death, vastly trained in that. If someone wants to talk about trauma, we can go there. If someone needs to talk about conflict and how to move past that, we can have those conversations. Those are areas where a lot of lay people, you are more equipped than you know, but sometimes you don't always feel real strong in that. And so Stephen Ministry will help that because you can have introductory conversations. Sometimes in having those conversations, those entry conversations, those invitational opportunities to allow people to say what is on their hearts and in their spirits and on their minds, it, it is a way in which we can identify, you know what, this person probably needs to have an even more in-depth conversation with the clergy, and then you're able to pass that information on. And so that has been a real blessing, not just in Methodism, but, but in all the denominations that employ Stephen ministers. It's a wonderful ministry. And so what ends up happening is that Stephen and the other six are considered to be oftentimes the first deacons. Now, depending on what your religious Christian background is, you, know, you may heard deacon used in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of denominations, especially the two largest ones, Catholicism and Southern Baptist, who have deacons that are not ordained. It's not the same thing as the priesthood is. And so in the Methodist church, it can be even a little bit more disconcerting and um, a little different in its own way because we ordain deacons and elders. I myself am an ordained elder, hence the broad stole. If I were a deacon, it would go like this. And so you can tell the difference between the two of us when we're in worship wearing robes and stoles so that you can see because we are both called to the service and the word, we are called to both of those and we're ordained to that. But elders have the additional um, sacrament and order. We are the administrators of the local church, but we are also ordering the liturgical life of the church in worship. And so that is our place in the church. But deacons trace themselves back to this moment. Deacons have a strong call to compassion and justice. And this was an issue of both. Women are starving. They need to eat, they need to be embraced by Christ's community, they need to know that there are those who love them and will care for them and are not going to let them suffer and die by the side of the road. And so it became this mission of compassion and justice. And ordained deacons in United Methodism continue this to this day. Oftentimes their ministry, while they may have a role in the local church, includes a bridging role to the outside community. They might help to administer and carry out a soup kitchen or a community center, or some other type of of mission work that enables them to be the bridge between what's happening in the local church and the needs of the community, just as these first seven were. And so it was a monumental time in the life of the church as it started to distinguish different roles for different people. Before it was like, we all believe, but then there's just the 12 doing things and that was not the way it should be. We should all be doing something because of our faith and for our faith. And so this was a time for them to start thinking about it and it worked. It says in verse seven, the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. By tending to the needs of those in the community, people were moved, they were transformed, they responded to this concept of grace. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's a reference to the priesthood in Judaism, the religion of Jesus. The fact that the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were witnessing, hearing about and experiencing this ministry of feeding the hungry, both the Jewish and the greek the gentile they were moved to become faithful to jesus christ that's insanely amazing that's awesome that the lay ministry of god's people actually made clergy become better let me say that again the lay ministry of the people made clergy better it made them more effective it made them more obedient to who jesus christ is can you imagine What was happening in the temple structure in the back rooms where they were all getting robed up and like, you know, he's starting to believe about that Jesus over there. Well, there are worse things than that, aren't there? A wonderful that they started to be able to see that the love and compassion that we have because of God's love and compassion for us was being translated not only into the real world of feeding people and caring for them, but also showing those who are already deep within the faith that they can still become better, they become more passionate. That's the gift of relationship. A lot of times, we try to figure out what is our faith about? And you might go, oh, it's about the creeds. We can talk about what the creeds say. And sure, for some of us, that is vastly interesting. For some of us, that is not. And so that's not going to satisfy us. For others, we might say, oh, it's the worship life of the church, the worship, having that communion with God and others is so incredible. It's about the worship of the church. And yes, it is about the worship of the church, but that's not going to be enough. And for some of us, it's about the interpersonal relationships that expand upon and build on the relationship that we have with God. It's the relationship above and below that really defines Christianity. You cannot be an island in Christianity. It's like we could sit here all day and next week we could have the anthem by Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island, which I will confess before you and God right now, I, as a kid, thought that he was saying onion, which made no sense to me. I am an onion, but then again, my mother used to listen to a band who sang about I am a walrus, so I wasn't really sure what was going on there, but we are not islands or onions or rocks. We are human beings that are being knitted together by the fabric of our faith, that we might become not a security net, but a safety blanket, that we can surround those who are fragile, vulnerable, suffering, in pain. We have moments like what happened at the University of Virginia, where you can see People even outside of the church trying to come together and find a way to be better than they were in that moment, to be supportive and to be earnest and compassionate and helpful. They are trying to do that, but oftentimes they are trying to do that from nothing. And if they are able to do it for a time successfully, over time that starts to wane. And I've done ministry long enough to know that sometimes when there is a tragedy like a death, a tragic death, The community will band together and and surround those who have lost their loved one. But over time, that starts to drift apart, and it starts to fail. Not because people are not interested, not because people are uncompassionate, it's just because we're people. And without relationship to sustain the commitment, then it falls aside. That's why for most of Christianity that are Christmas and Easter people, The derogatory term is creaster, creaster people, which you are not because you are sitting here right now. Congratulations. You are not. But for those people, you'll notice there's a pattern in their behavior. There's a pattern in their behavior. Right about December 1st, they start to get interested in mission work, right? Angel trees, donating kids' toys, that kind of thing. They start to get interested in that. And then it builds up to Christmas, and they go to Christmas Eve or Christmas Day worship, and then nothing we get to the birth of Jesus and they'll show up when he resurrects he had 33 years in between his birth and his resurrection but that's the point there's a relationship to be had and during the rest of the year we're working on our relationship with Jesus We're trying to be engaged in what he did and what he said and how he's fulfilling the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. We're engaged in what he's calling us to do right now. But relationship is what keeps us tethered. When I was growing up, my family got really reinvigorated in church right about the time my sister was really young. There's about 10 years between my sister and I. And so me being slightly oppositional was like, I'm not going to Sunday school with my peer group, I'll just go be an assistant in my sister's Sunday school. And so I did a lot of that. And then my family had this weird thing where like you spent all Sunday at church, you went to the Sunday school hour and then you went to 11 o'clock worship. And I had to go every week because my parents were like, you are going to church. And I was like, no, I'm not. And they're like, yes, you are. And so we ended up in church. And what ends up happening is that if you sit around and you look grumpy long enough, people wanna come and talk to you. And so I started to build relationships, right? At first I started building relationships with my sister's peer group, little kids, still one of my target audiences. Started to build a rapport with them, and then you start to build a rapport with their parents, and then, you know, you start, it kind of builds from there, and then all of a sudden people are like, hey, you're always here at the 11 o'clock service. Do you want to light things on fire? Yes. And then you become an acolyte. And then you're sitting in the front pew, because that's where acolytes sit, lighting things on fire periodically throughout the worship service. And then, you know, what happens? One day, an adult doesn't show up to do something that they agreed to do. And they call on you, you, because you're sitting there, right? That's exactly what happened. And then the pastor says, would you come up and read this piece of scripture? And you're like, I guess so. I have to sit here anyway, and I've already lit the thing on fire. I might as well come and read. So you come up and you read. And then people, because you've established a relationship with you, encourage you. They're like, you did a really good job. Maybe you should read again. And then all of a sudden, any time an adult doesn't show up, which, by the way, happens more than you would think as a teenager. You read a lot of scripture. And then one day they go, you know what, we're going to do a youth service and Sarah's got a lot of uh, practice reading from there. Maybe Sarah can preach. How you go from reading the Bible to preaching the Bible, I'm not exactly sure. Not the same, different skill set. But that's how it began. And then rather than going, that was very nice, sit down, the relationships continued to encourage. It was though the ministry of the laity that led me to become clergy. My parents weren't ordained. My parents were like, we are lay people, and lay people go to church on Sunday, and we will be going to church on Sunday, and you will dress appropriately. It's part of the gig. And then you get there, and then lay people are like, do you want to set things on fire? I've never had a clergy person be like, do you want to set things on fire? That's usually not something clergy say to people. And then, I told you, a lay person didn't show up. I guarantee you, whenever the clergy were supposed to read, the clergy were there. But the lay person didn't show up. The layperson didn't show up and other people were like, you can ask her, she's sitting right there. It's hard to miss her, she's wearing a robe. And so laity actually helped me on my path to become clergy. It's the relationships that you have. And in the church, you, you will form relationships with people that you would never form relationships with otherwise, never. The first sermon I ever preached began with we are a band of misfits. And I will hold to that. That was probably the only really correct thing I actually said in that entire sermon. We are a band of misfits. We are. You know, there are plenty of times where I'll be out in public and I will run into a church member or a preschool family, somebody in the ministry of the church and I'll be talking to them and my friends afterwards will be like, who is that? And how do they know you? That's my friend from church. That's my friend from Grace Grocery. That's my friend from the preschool. It's pretty easy to figure out who I am in public. And so you have these relationships with people, and they feel free to talk to you. They feel free to join with you in other things other than just being in the realm in which you met them. And that's the difference in the church. We are being offered not just relationships with God. We are being offered relationships with each other. And you can choose, and there are other Christian denominations where all you have to do is show up at worship and call it a day. There are those, but that was really never what Methodism was supposed to be. In the beginning, the original Methodists who were actually Anglicans, those members of the Church of England were not satisfied with just showing up. Their hearts and their heads and their spirits knew that there had to be more than that. If all you're doing is showing up at worship, then you're not able to identify the needs of the widows. You're not able to realize that there are hurts happening in the community because you're not in that frame of mind. The more that you are in relationship with other people, the more God is able to talk to you through them and to them through you. Have you ever realized that in your life you cultivate relationships with people and then there are things you can say to those people that you can't say to anybody else or that they won't receive from anybody else? You know, sometimes that's your best friend, sometimes it's your family, you never know. In my case, it happens to be, I'm Pastor Sarah. And sometimes in the preschool, you'll have a kid who's having what we call a feisty goat day, right? We taught them from the beginning, good sheep, feisty goats. We talk about that that metaphor, that parable from Matthew, and we equip them with that language. You know, every day you wake up and make a choice. Are you going to be a good sheep? Are you going to be a feisty goat? And no matter what you choose, God still loves you. But the next day, Jesus is like, enough of the feisty goat. Let's try to have a good sheep day. And so we equipped the kids with this language. And sometimes the teachers use it. And sometimes the parents use it. You never know where you might hear this language. And so one day, I was standing there watching a child who was having a clearly feisty goat day and moment. And I watched. And I watched the teachers try to, like, correct this kid and try to get this kid to, like, come back to the flock. Come back. And the kid just wasn't doing it. And finally, I was just like, come over here. Come over here. And the kid comes over and I was like, you know that this is not how we behave. And they're like. I'm like, don't you think you can do a little better? And I was like, all right, go back and do the right thing. They went back. Now, the teacher was like, what did you say to them? I said to them the same thing you were saying, but it came from me. It came from me. And unlike everybody else, preschoolers actually listened to me. They listen and respect. So the kid went back and at the end of the day when we were sending the kid home, I was like, hey, what a way to turn it around today. Feisty goat to good sheep in three hours. Good job, good job. And that's the difference is that because of relationship, we're able to say things. I mean, I, I would have loved to see just any random person walk up and try to talk to this kid. That probably wouldn't have happened. But again, you know the, the teachers have a very close relationship with the kids, and that day, we were just having a feisty goat day. And it took just a little bit of Pastor Sarah to go, you know what, we're not gonna do this. We're not gonna do it. That was probably my biz- biggest success all day. But I couldn't have done it if I didn't have a relationship. It's about the relationships within the community. And we are very lucky. I'm gonna say that, we are very lucky because Methodism could have formed its way in a lot of different ways. Could have chosen many different forms. But really, there are two categories of people in Methodism. There are clergy and there are laity, and we are not like this, we are like this. I am no holier than any of you. I am no more special than anybody else. I have specific roles that I have been called to and ordained to. But you, too, have roles to which you have been called and ordained. You have been called by God to use your particular gifts and graces, and the Holy Spirit is upon you to consecrate you for that work. And now you can go about trying to do that work on your own, but you'll be more successful and more joyful if you don't do it alone. And so on Sunday morning, sometimes... You think, you know, look at everything that's happening up here, but I wouldn't even be standing here if it weren't for a whole lot of people. People behind the scenes, people literally behind me. There are a lot of people that help make things happen. And we have relationships. And that's what makes the world better through Jesus Christ. So may you have the opportunity, because there are people who are watching, They are watching, they are listening, and they are looking for the right kind of relationship. And if you choose to open yourself up, to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to tear down the barriers and the walls and and remove the veneers that a secular society calls for you, then you might discover that what God is actually offering you is not just a relationship but God is offering you a brand new family. And that is the best blessing of Jesus Christ. A family of siblings in Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen.